It was all becoming very, very close. Everything that Jesus had been putting on display, everything that he had been teaching his disciples, all the things that he was saying would soon come to pass, they were on the verge of happening. Everything was about to come into fruition. And so Jesus climbed on the back of a donkey and rode into the city of Jerusalem. And as he did, he was met with a spectacle. He was met with people lining the roads, and they were waving palm branches in the air. They were laying their clothing on the floor, and they were singing, Hosanna, or God, save us. They were excited about this this man who was showing himself to be someone different, someone unique, maybe even the Messiah that had been promised. He was finally coming into the city, and they were expecting the kingdom of God to come with him. And so he rides into the town, and he heads straight to the temple. And in the temple, Jesus finds merchants. Treating the temple and treating the Passover holiday like some sort of spiritual six flags, but instead of charging $8 for a bottle of water, they jack up the prices on these sacrificial animals, charging people exorbitant amounts to be able to worship God in the house of God. And Jesus, filled with righteous anger, makes himself a whip, turns over tables, and runs the people out of the temple. What an entrance. You might even call it a triumphant entrance into this city and into what would become the last week of Jesus' life before he is put on trial, arrested, and then crucified only to raise again three days later. And with that kind of entrance, of course, because his entire ministry, as we've seen through the book of Luke, has been marked by this, Jesus is met with opposition from the religious leaders inside the city. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today as we dive back in to the book of Luke. And looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19, we're going to see a conflict between Jesus and some of the religious leaders of his day. But we've seen those over the course of this entire study through Luke. We've seen numerous times where Jesus has come into conflict with people like this. But this one is different. This one is unique. And we're about to find out why. And so from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 19. It says, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it was that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send out my beloved son, and perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and for your mercy and your kindness that's new every morning. for who you are and what you've done for us through Christ. And God, as we see this very unique parable, as Jesus teaches about what looks to be his own defeat, God, help us to see your victory. Help us to understand the incredible plan that you had from the beginning to take victory from defeat, and to take the keys to the kingdom, an inheritance beyond measure, and share it with those who didn't deserve it and who could never earn it. So teach us through your word this morning. Help us to know you more, help us to love you more, and help us to live as people who have been set free and given victory. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. When I was preparing for the sermon this week, I read an article about Prince Philip, who, as of a few years ago, retired from public life from royal duty at the age of 95. And in the middle of this article, it listed Prince Philip's entire title, which I would now like to share with you because I think it's wonderful. It says... His Royal Highness, I feel like I should read it in a different voice, but I'm not going to do that to you. His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Marionneth, Baron Greenwich, Royal Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Extra Knight, ooh, I like that, of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Member of the Order of Merit, Grand Master, and First and Principal Knight, Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Knight of the Order of Australia, additional member of the Order of New Zealand, extra companion of the Queen's Service Order, royal chief of the Order of Alagahu, extraordinary companion of the Order of Canada, extraordinary commander of the Order of Military Merit, Lord of Her Majesty's Most Honorable, with a U in the Honorable, Privy Council, Privy Councilor of the Queen's Privy Council of Canada, personal aide-de-camp to Her Majesty, <gasps> Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom. <laughs> 
that is a most glorious title. The article suggested that it is possible that Prince Philip retired from royal office because after 75 years of royal duty, he was tired of writing his name, which is possible because that is a title with over 140 words in it. But throughout history, royalty has used these sort of titles. And has given these sort of titles away because with each one of these titles and with each one of these distinctions, it carries weight and it carries authority. And so this really shuts down the possibility of ever asking Prince Philip, who do you think you are? Because mostly you just don't want him to tell you because it would take a very long time. But also he has so much weight and distinction with his name that whenever he did something, you knew the authority through which he did it. There is something very crippling about the question, who do you think you are, when you do not have as many names before or after your name as Prince Philip. Because when you do something or when you try to act on a certain level of authority and then somebody responds to you with that question, who do you think you are? Why do you think you have the ability to say this or do this or go to this place? You're not that person. You're not that man. You're not that woman. You don't have that power. It's a very sombering and sometimes belittling and condescending and crippling question. And it's the exact question that these chief priests and scribes ask Jesus. As Jesus is out teaching, they look at him and they say, who do you think you are? By whose authority are you preaching and are you teaching these things? Because there was a tradition in the rabbinical world for these teachers. You would always teach based on somebody else's authority. And so you would say something because your teacher taught you this, because his teacher taught him this, because that teacher taught him this. And so you had this long lineage of authority set up for you. And so they're trying to trap him here saying, we know that you don't have any other earthly authority around you. And you seem to just be making these things up as you go. So why don't you tell us, good teacher, who do you think you are? But this is also a fair question. Because Jesus just did a pretty extreme thing. He just walked into the temple, the temple, capital T, this incredibly nice building where people go to worship God, and he made a scene, and he turned over tables, and he declared to have some sort of authority inside of the temple. And so they ask a question, and they get a response. And the response, if you've been here through any parts of this book of Luke, is classic Jesus. He doesn't answer the question, but in fact, he responds by saying, that is a good question. I will ask you one of my own. Now answer me. And it had to be so frustrating. And you would think that there, and I know this was 2,000 years ago, but there had to be some sort of chief priest or scribe or rabbinical social network where they would pass these things along and say, hey, listen, if you're thinking about trying to trap Jesus, I just want to give you a little advice. He does this thing where when you ask him a question, he asks one back, and it's really difficult, and they're usually really deep questions, and it makes you look kind of dumb. So I would recommend going another route, but no, they try again. And so Jesus answers their question with a question. He says, tell me about the baptism of John. Was the baptism of John from heaven, or was it from man? Is it from God's authority, or is it from human authority? And they break into a huddle, and I hope it was an actual huddle. I hope they huddled up, and they they were talking to each other in secret in a nice little circle, and they said, hey, it's a tricky question. Because if we say that his authority came from heaven, then Jesus is going to look at us and say, well, you didn't like John either. Why didn't you pay attention to John? 
But if we say that his authority came from man, all of these people around us, they really like John and they thought he was a prophet. And so they are going to have a really big problem if we say that. And so they turn around to Jesus and they said, eh, I don't know. We don't know whose authority John baptized with. And so Jesus says, well, if you don't know where his authority came from, then I'm not going to tell you where mine comes from. And so it seems like he says nothing here. And yet, as Jesus is prone to do, in saying nothing, Jesus actually says everything. You see, in this moment, Jesus reveals the lack of knowledge that these supposed religious elite have. They don't understand the deeper things. They don't understand the things of heaven. They don't understand what Jesus is doing. And at the same time, he reveals how deeply he really does understand what he's saying. And also at the same time, he reveals the source of his authority. He says, if you don't know the source of John's baptism, if you don't know where John's baptism came, then you can't possibly know where my authority comes from because they come from the same place. Because John's baptism was heavenly motivated with an earthly action. It was an earthly action, a man-based action, but it came from God. And he was baptizing people in preparation for the Messiah to come. And so Jesus is saying that same authority with which John baptized is the authority that I am here now through the Holy Spirit of God doing the work of God. Because Jesus is all God and all man. He's given authority over the temple because as the book of Hebrews teaches us, he is the new and he is the better temple who came from heaven to earth as God comes to meet with man. And he speaks the word of God through the power of God with the same authority that hung each and every star in the sky and told them where they should go. And these religious leaders that had heard about Jesus and now have heard Jesus and see Jesus, they can't see the scope of his authority but they're starting to get some kind of an idea. And by revealing his own authority, he calls theirs into question. And because Jesus starts to question the authority of these people who have never had their authority questioned before, they have another huddle and they start to say, you know what? This guy's got to go. And so they set him up with the question, who do you think you are? And when Jesus gives the answer, they really don't like it. And then he moves to start to tell a parable. But I've told you before, I'm not a huge baseball fan. It's just, I don't know. Apparently the World Series game the other day went 18 innings. What sort of horrid thing is that? I can't watch anything for 18 innings. It was something like 3 or 4 in the morning. That is just rough. I can't do it. I like my games quick. I like my games short. I like games that score 140 points at a time. That's how I like it. But I do like some of the stories from baseball because it's been around for a long time. And one of those legends, one of those famous legends is about Babe Ruth who apparently not only was the home run champion for however many years before Hank Aaron came and and superseded him, was also responsible for pitching what some historians call the best World Series game ever, pitching 14 innings. Again, (laughs) way too long, but he pitched 14 innings, only giving up one run and won the game. But his most famous story, I think, and I don't know if it happened or not, but it sounds like a good story, is that one time he steps into the batter's box and he takes his bat (sighs) and he points it down to center field. And then he hits a home run exactly where it went. Great story. Now, had old babe got in the batter's box, pointed to center field, and then hit the ball right to the pitcher and grounded out, 
that story probably wouldn't have made it through the annals of history. But what would have been even more pathetic and would have, an even stranger story would be if Babe got into the batter's box. I don't know if he's left-handed or right-handed. I'm assuming he's right-handed. It doesn't really matter for the story. But let's just say it is. He steps into the batter's box, stands by the plate, and predicts a... And then strikes out. Nobody wants to predict their own strikeout, right? No one wants to predict a bad thing happening. It doesn't seem very majestic. It doesn't seem very awesome. It doesn't seem very royal. But that's exactly what Jesus seems to do here. Now, I love how he does it. Because we've seen Jesus do this several times through the book of Luke. He talks to the religious leaders, and they ask their question, and he asks their question, and they get a little weird and squirrely, and then all of a sudden they find out they can't trap him or trick him. And then, and I hope he does this very demonstratively, but as he's talking to the the religious leaders, once he's done with them, he then turns and starts talking to everybody else and starts speaking away from the religious leaders and to the people to which he's been teaching and sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. And through that, he tells a parable but one with a very unexpected meaning. Because this would be a good time to gloat. Jesus just shut down these chief priests and these scribes, these people that had all the answers to all the questions. They couldn't answer his question, and so he's just shown that he has an authority that they don't. And so he could turn around and say, see those guys? They're nothing. They think they have all the answers, but they have nothing. Let me tell you a story about the God who is bringing his kingdom into the world. And he could celebrate his victory and start to gloat, but he doesn't. In fact, he tells a story about a man who has a vineyard. And he lets it out to some other tenants, and then he goes away for a while. And then it's time to collect what he needs from his tenants. And he sends a servant. And they said, no thanks. And they beat the servant, and they sent him away. And he does it again, and they do it again. He does it again a third time, sending a third servant. And the response is the exact same. They beat the servant, and they send him home empty-handed. And finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I have a better idea. I'm going to send my own son to the vineyard. And maybe they'll respect him. Maybe they'll listen to him. But they didn't. They saw him as an opportunity to advance themselves and to steal this inheritance, and they killed the son of the vineyard. It's a story about defeat. And unlike some of his parables, Jesus is very clear with what the underlying meaning of this is. And for these religious leaders, they would understand exactly what Jesus is talking about because he's saying, listen, the God that you claim to serve, he, over time, has sent multiple prophets into this world because he's given you this world to be caretakers of. And as priests and as religious leaders, it was your job to be good stewards of what God has given you and care for the people and love the people. And yet you didn't. And so God sent the prophets and your fathers killed them. And he sent more, and your fathers killed them as well. And he sent more, and your fathers killed them as well because they didn't want to hear what God had to say. And so now, in the fullness of his time, God decided to send forth his one and only son. And I am right here in your midst. And maybe they'll respect him. Maybe they'll see him for who he really is. But they didn't. Much like the tenants in the story of the vineyard, they saw Jesus as an opportunity or someone standing in their way. Someone who had the inheritance and the reward that they felt like they deserved and somebody who needed to be eliminated. And so just like in the story, in just a few days, these same scribes and these same chief priests would hand Jesus over to be killed so they could take his inheritance. 
See, Jesus knew what lived in their hearts. He knew the selfish ambition that they had, that they wanted to take God's favor, that they wanted to take their legacy, that they wanted to take the keys to the kingdom of God, and they wanted to remove Jesus from standing in their way because he was starting to rock the good thing they had going. And eventually they would. And so here Jesus tells a story predicting his loss, what appears to be God's loss and a victory for his enemies. But of course, the story isn't over. Because he continues, he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? You may have heard the phrase before that sometimes you have to lose the battle to win the war. But these scribes and these chief priests didn't realize that the war had actually already been won. Long before they had this interaction with Jesus, long before they hatched their plan to have Jesus arrested and killed, long before Jesus rode into Jerusalem, long before the foundations of the world, God had a plan through which he would bring in redemption and victory for his people. Because Jesus tells in the story here that the owner of the vineyard is still around and he's not finished. And as Jesus would be laying in that tomb in just a few days, the enemies of God would feel as though they had solved their problem. That they had defeated their enemy, that they had taken the kingdom of God into their own hands. But Jesus says, then the owner of the vineyard comes. And it gets heavy. He says he will come and destroy those tenants and give their vineyard to others. And then they start to realize what Jesus is saying. He says the king, the, the king of the vineyard, the God of the vineyard is going to come and he's going to take away this victory that my enemies feel like they have and he's going to destroy them and give the inheritance to somebody else. And these scribes and these chief priests look and they say, no, 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 no. Surely not. That's not how this is going to happen. That's not how this is going to go. And I wonder in this moment what scared them most. If it was the, the prediction of destruction, or if it was the fact that God would take their inheritance and give it to someone else. Because there would shortly come a time when they would lay Jesus in a tomb. But their victory would soon be replaced by a more stinging defeat. Because as we see in Scripture, and as we're going to see as we continue through the book of Luke, that three days later, after Jesus was laid into the tomb, just as he predicted, that temple would be rebuilt. That the Son of God would be given new life. That the God of the vineyard would raise him back to life. And as Jesus says here in this passage, the stone that the builders rejected would become the cornerstone on which the entire kingdom of God is built. And through his resurrection, three days later, Jesus would rip the keys of the kingdom away from those who were religiously empowered and spiritually abusive, who used their position to lord over other people. He would take that inheritance away from them, and he would give it to the weak and the broken and the poor and the powerless, the people who could never afford it on their own. He would give it freely to any who would come. And the God of the vineyard would give his inheritance away. And so what first sounded like conceding defeat proved to be a declaration of victory, spoken by the Son of God, sealed with the authority of God. And we're taught in Scripture that his victory can become our victory. 
And in just a moment, we're going to see Hannah being baptized. And the picture of baptism is the picture of this story. Because baptism begins with what looks like defeat, with being laid back into the water, being buried into death. But that's not where it ends. Luckily for Hannah, that's not where the baptism starts. Because on the other side of that, we're lifted back out. And it shows the victory of Jesus where what is once dead is made alive. And what was once sinful is made clean by the waters of baptism and by the blood of Christ. Where we get to share in the victory that Jesus won for us, not only through his death, but through his resurrection as well. And so there is a message for all of us inside of this parable. The Bible teaches that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all of us are dead, as the Bible says, in our sins and trespasses. But God loved the world so much that he was willing to give his one and only son. Even though throughout the ages, God sent people to be his mouthpiece. God sent the prophets and they were rejected and they were brutalized and they were sent out. God said, I love this world so much that I am not done with them. And I'm going to send my one and only son into the world. And he is going to bear rejection and he's going to bear that shame. He's even going to bear that death so that through him and through what he does and what he accomplishes, many more can become my children can become my sons and daughters, can become victorious, not only over death, but over sin, shame, and guilt. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ before, if you've never been through the waters of baptism before, then this is, this is the message that we're about to see proclaimed through Hannah's baptism. That each and every one of us, even though we don't deserve anything from God, are loved by God, and he gave his one and only son to do for us what we couldn't do on our own. And this salvation isn't something that we earn or something that we work for, something that we have to establish ourselves in, but something that we just receive as a gift from God. And so if you've never trusted and followed after Jesus, if you've never been through baptism, then please don't leave today without talking with me or one of our other elders or one of our community group leaders about what it means to be saved by the God who loves you that much. If you're here and you've trusted in Christ for salvation and you've been through the waters of baptism, then that victory that Jesus won through his death and resurrection, that victory is yours. And we are called to not live like people who have been defeated, but to live like people who are victorious. In the midst of the good times and the bad, in the midst of successes and failures, we realize that no matter what comes through our life, Jesus has already won that victory for us. And so we should rejoice in all things. We should have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And we should be people who live the life of victory until one day our hope, our faith is made sight. And the God of the vineyard who loved us enough to give his only son for us will hand us not only the keys to the kingdom of God, but the inheritance that belongs to Jesus that he now shares with us and we will be with God forever. And if that's not a reason to celebrate and live in victory, I don't know what is. And so as we sing another song, as we pray more prayers, as we get ready to see Hannah go through the waters of baptism, and then as we leave here today, let's leave as people who are victorious, living lives as people who are victorious, and on our lips and in our hands and in our feet, everywhere that we go this week, declare the victory of Jesus.